tuned for Dialogos Radio, the weekly radio program featuring the best in Greek music and culture, plus interviews with Greek and international newsmakers. Dialogos Radio with Michael Nevaradakis begins now. Welcome to another week of Dialogos Radio, the radio program that bridges the worldwide Greek community and which is heard worldwide on various radio stations across four continents. My name is Dr. Michael Nevradagis and today the Alagos Radio is back after a long hiatus, uh, a hiatus that took place for personal and especially for academic reasons on my end. Our last show was in June of 2019 and now We're here uh, recording this just a few days before Christmas 2019. We are back, and we're back with a new format, a new format for the Alagos Radio. Uh, we're going away from what we've been doing for the past nine years or so. Uh, the Alagos Radio got its start in August of 2010 at the University of Texas on the radio station of the University of Texas, KVRX. Uh, as an interview-based program, primarily. Uh, we featured interviews over the years with uh, Greek and international personalities. We covered all sorts of issues um, uh, relating to the Greek crisis and everything that has been going on in Greece and the Greek world uh, over the past decade. And that was, uh, that was primarily our format since 2010. But uh, times change, uh, circumstances change, abilities change as well. My life is different than it was in 2010 or even 2015 or 2017. Uh, but also the world is different as well. And I think that as these changes have occurred, it's time for a new format. And that new format here on the Alagos Radio began last week with the Greek language edition of our show. And today we're introducing it on the English language edition of our show. It's a talk radio format. We're going to have regular guests that we're going to discuss uh, whatever's in the news and whatever other topic we have in mind. Uh, we're going to discuss with them. Uh, it'll be a different format, and I think it'll be something that will be fresh for Greek radio. There is not a lot of talk radio in the Greek radio universe, so to speak, uh, whether that is Greek language radio or whether that is Greek radio overseas in the diaspora. Uh, so I think we're doing something new, something fresh, and I think it's something that a lot of listeners are going to appreciate as well because we're going to go into a lot of detail every week with regular guest hosts that are very well informed on a number of topics Uh, and we're going to have some great conversations. So today, our guest, who is going to be a regular on our program, Evans Agelisopoulos, author, researcher, and former university lecturer, is uh, joining us from London. So, Evans, uh, hello, first of all. Hello, pleased to hear you, and uh, welcome to all your viewers or listeners. Uh, it's great to have you, Evans. We did have you on our show a few months ago, and uh, at that time, it was just before the Brexit deadline that had been set at that time for March the 31st. 
and we had a very extensive discussion. Uh, it was more interview-based uh, than what we're doing now, but we had an extensive discussion on Brexit and whether or not it would even happen and what it would mean. And here we are now uh, about six months, actually, no, about eight months later, um, just having had elections uh, take place in the UK, uh, a big Tory victory, and now we have talk again, not just about Brexit, but how Brexit will take place. So let me start off by uh, throwing the ball over to you to just talk about what has been discussed in the UK since uh, December the 12th. What is uh, being discussed now in the aftermath of the uh, election in the Boris Johnson victory? Well, it's uh, quite ironic, but today they're talking in Parliament the withdrawal bill. So it's the second reading of it, and with the majority that Johnson has, it's clearly going to go through. And this is, I think, maybe the fourth or fifth time we're supposed to be leaving the EU. Uh, but because this is the bill which uh, codifies the departure, and it's guaranteed to pass, Britain will officially leave. January the 31st, 2020. What that actually means in practice is a little bit more complicated. Uh, it just implies that they will officially leave Brussels. So the Euro MPs will leave. They will no longer participate within uh, the council meetings in Brussels. And they will then start another round of negotiations which allegedly are going to last all the way till the end of next year, December 2020. And I think this is where uh, Trump comes in. And it's quite ironic that on the one hand, we have Brexit in England. And on the other, uh, this impe impeachment process has started, which a lot of Europeans are confused about. You know, <laughs> an explanation would be great as to what it actually means and whether it actually means anything. <laughs> okay, so we've opened up a number of different topics and we're going to come back to all of them. But since you addressed impeachment, there is indeed a lot of confusion, not just uh, on the part of Europeans about what impeachment is and what it means, but even many Americans as well don't know what it means. Uh, I'll try to break it down as simply as possible. First of all, Trump is the third president uh, in U.S. history that the House has impeached. It's actually not even, according to some uh, legal scholars at least, the impeachment as of now, December 20th, is not even official because the House has not yet delivered the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Now, what all of this means in, in practice, in reality, is this. The way that the U.S. political system is set up with the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch of government, each having equal powers, the legislative branch, which it is itself split into two, you have the House of Representatives and the Senate, they are the ones that investigate and try, in the first instance, any accusations, any charges against the sitting president. So what the House of Representatives does is it initiates impeachment proceedings. And what impeachment actually means is that the House has ruled that there's enough evidence to then try 
the president. However, that trial takes place in the Senate. And until that takes place, and only if the Senate actually then rules that the president is guilty of whatever charges were brought upon him, only then is the president removed. So uh, a lot of our listeners might remember, for instance, back in 1998, Bill Clinton, he was impeached, but he was not removed from office. And the same thing is very likely to happen with Donald Trump as well. At some point when the Senate takes up this case, it will either dismiss it, which has been rumored, or a trial will take place, in which case the president and his administration will have the ability to present evidence and to defend themselves and to call witnesses. And it's entirely likely that even if a Senate trial takes place, that uh, the president will be exonerated. And the reason for that is that in order for the president to be found guilty, a two-thirds majority is needed. So the Senate has 100 seats. That means that 67 votes are required to throw out the president. And with Donald Trump and his party, with the Republicans having a majority in the Senate, and also having seen on the House side two or three Democrats actually breaking ranks and not voting for impeachment, whereas no Republicans voted in favor of impeachment, it's very unlikely that about 20 or so Republicans out of the 53 Republicans that are in the Senate will vote to impeach Trump. So it's very, very unlikely that anything will actually happen to Trump through this process. A lot of people that are in favor of impeachment are going around saying, oh, well, you know, there's always going to be an asterisk next to his name. Uh, Well, (laughs) they don't say that about Bill Clinton. That's the interesting thing. And he was impeached as well. And you hear a lot of people even today talking about what a great president he was. So It's all in the eye of the beholder, but uh, I think, if anything, this helps Trump. And it was interesting to see even the Washington Post, which is not a newspaper that is at all favorable to Donald Trump. In fact, it's owned by Jeff Bezos. Trump and Bezos are not known to be on very good terms. Uh, They published an op-ed about how ridiculous the whole impeachment uh, process was in the House and how there's really no chance that it's going to get anywhere in the Senate and that it's actually helping Trump. Because now, and you see this in social media, I'm sure you've seen this, Evans, it's galvanized his support base. And it's also shaken up a lot of swing voters and independents that are on the fence. They may not be the biggest fans of Trump in the world, but they're not necessarily fans of the Democratic Party and especially the Democratic Party in its current incarnation. And this is reflected in the polls. Now, you might say, oh, well, you know, who can trust the polls? Well, the same polls that were saying that, you know, just a few days before Election Day in 2016, that Hillary Clinton had something like a 98.1% chance of uh, winning the election. Well, these same polls were showing just a month ago, uh, I think it was 51 to 49 support in favor of impeachment. Now it's showing those opposed to impeachment six points ahead of those who are in favor. And that is also true in all of the swing states where the race between Trump and Hillary Clinton was very close in 2016. So all of this shows that, um, if anything, Trump is probably getting a boost from this. 
Obviously, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the Senate, but as of now, at least, it looks like the impeachment is actually making Trump seem as someone who has a big bullseye on his head. And uh, that is galvanizing his base, and it's also swinging a lot of uh, swing voters, a lot of independents over to his side. So a bit of a long explanation, but the bottom line is that Trump, for now, is not going anywhere, and probably he's not going anywhere until 2020 at the earliest, and only then if he loses the next election. Yeah, the the reason, obviously, I asked was because uh, Trump has been involved in the Brexit process almost uh, from day one, although the media has sort of presented it as, you know, uh, a direct involvement whenever they feel that they want to attack Trump. But in reality, it's a process that started, obviously, from Greece when they had the referendum uh, and they voted no against the European Union. And because of the Euro crisis, all the problems were transferred to the UK. And the UK was forced in having a referendum uh, after a Brexit, or at the time it was called the UKIP party, uh, won a majority in the European elections in 2014, which forced the new government of Cameron in 2015 to call a referendum. When that referendum in 2016 was won for Britain to leave, uh, and subsequently uh, Trump had been elected, uh, he started uh, to talk in favour of Brexit. But the government we had previously of Theresa May did everything in its power to basically not leave. And we were left with the mindset that Britain may not leave, But in reality, what was probably going on was that the Conservative Party was just buying time. So they spent about three and a half years talking nonsense and going around in circles with uh, fake votes and a whole load of shenanigans. And then we reached the stage where the official date of departure was this March, and Britain does not leave. And then we had another two or three dates of departure. And we also had an election inside the Conservative Party that was also predicted a year ago by Steve Bannon, who said that May is useless and that Boris Johnson needs to take over, which is what happened. Now, in politics, when someone says something 12 months before, you should take notice of it, primarily because rarely do you get a glimpse into the future and then things lock into place. The same is happening now. They're saying that if Trump is elected in November, the crucial December date for for the full departure of the UK from the EU will have Trump as you know, the the referee or, or the backstop man. And if the EU tries any funny business with the UK in terms of the tariffs, in terms of the amount of money they want for the divorce, 
in terms of all the regulations, the European Court of Justice, blah, 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 that Trump may say he will impose lots of tariffs on EU exports to America and thus give a helping hand to the negotiations that Boris Johnson is having with the EU. And the, the, re the reason I say that is, is because another event that occurred in Athens that they don't really report is when Steve Bannon came there and had a, a discussion with a French uh, so-called intellectual, Bernard Levy, about the future state of the world. Uh, Bannon said that, that Trump will go into the second term uh, with an agenda of a Europe of nations and that after Brexit is secured, then Italy may come on board and start to question the edifice of the European Union. And behind all of this is the fact that America has the power to basically impose tariffs on EU exports. And it's quite ironic uh, that another little event has occurred in the last couple of weeks, which again is not really reported in the global media, is that the Americans pulled their judges out of the WTO. And if you remember, the WTO was the organization set up which basically codified the legal framework for globalization, where, whereby foreign or global multinationals could operate in any country on earth. And if you didn't let them operate, uh, they would take you to court for a loss of income. One of the famous cases which occurred was when a German British water company set up shop in some Bolivian city and blocked all the citizens from collecting rainwater and riots ensued. Uh, officials were held hostage. I don't know if a couple were bumped off as well. And then the company was thrown out of the country and then they sued Bolivia under WTO rules and Bolivia had to pay them a couple of hundred million dollars for loss of income. Now, why is this significant, the WTO? If it no longer regulates global trade in terms of laws and rules, it means America can basically do what it wants. And by having the ability to do what they want to foreign countries or foreign companies, they can negotiate themselves out of all these globalist trade deals that have been created and basically implement Trump's first term agenda, which was Americans first. And I think along that path is the trajectory that Boris Johnson is obliged to go. And it would be good to hear, I don't know, for, for the listeners, how, for instance, Trump's cultural agenda will have an effect on us in the UK because yesterday uh, a conservative council, the conservatives are the party that governs, passed a rule in some area saying that uh, any child that declares 
whatever gender they want, can use whatever toilet they want. And, and this will create a big issue to Boris Johnson's uh, base if, you know, these decisions are implemented. Right. So there's uh, a lot of issues that you brought up uh, regarding the issue of identity politics. I think that what we're seeing in the U.S. and also in the U.K. and in Europe right now is a big dividing line between various interest groups, basically. And these lines are really beginning to come into conflict with each other. There's a lot of examples I can think of, for instance, where one that comes to mind was also in the UK. You might remember Liz Evans, where uh, there was a school in the UK where um, parents of Muslim students were openly opposed to LGBT education in the uh, school system. And from what I understand, that school actually had to pull all of that material from its curriculum. So there you have two competing agendas. There's the migration agenda, and then there's an identity politics agenda, often supported by the same people, but then they came into conflict with each other. I think it was yesterday, actually, that uh, that author of the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling, came under fire for, I believe, tweeting or saying something in support of... um, a therapist who came out and said that there's only two genders. And this is someone who actually works, I believe, with uh, gay and lesbian uh, individuals. Um, So what I think we've been seeing in the past three or four years, especially since 2016, which was the year of the Brexit referendum and the year of the Trump election in the U.S., is this increasing polarization uh, on a cultural level and a polarization that's even beginning now to sort of go inwards. We've seen, I'll give yet another example, women's sports and how there's these controversies over whether trans athletes should be allowed to compete in women's competitions and if they have an unfair advantage and we keep hearing about how many of those athletes keep setting records and just overpowering, um, you know, biologically female uh, athletes and how there's a lot of there's a lot of pushback on that now from female athletes and from uh, their parents in many cases. All of that really has sped up in the past three years. And I think that a lot of the opposition that we've seen to Brexit, to Trump, to Boris Johnson in the UK comes from groups and from individuals that feel threatened that these rights or privileges or whatever you want to call them will be taken away. Uh, And it'll be interesting to see if Trump gets another four years, how things are going to continue to play out on that front in the U.S. and also around the world, being that, you know, what happens in the U.S. has such great influence over what happens elsewhere, including, of course, Europe. I wanted to also come back to the WTO, the World Trade Organization, of course, and to mention here that I remember when I was a teenager in the late 1990s, one of my first, let's say, introductions to politics was reading about these free trade agreements and about these 
supranational organizations like the WTO and the impact that they were having on poorer countries, Latin America, Africa, many countries in Asia, the impact that they were having on the poor, on workers in those countries, and how these institutions like the WTO were basically not accountable to anyone. They had their own tribunals, their own courts, their own system of arbitration that was not accountable to any national law. And what I recall was that at the time, uh, the left was very much opposed to the WTO and to other organizations like it. You and some of our listeners may remember the WTO protests in Seattle, I believe it was in November of 1999. Uh, that was actually where Indie Media was born uh, as well. That's an interesting little side note. Indie Media, the, uh, you know, the well-known... Soros. The, <laughs> yes. Uh, it was born during the uh, Seattle protests in 1999, but it was really sort of a defining moment back then in sort of various left-wing movements. And then there was Genoa, in 2001, I think it was the G7 or the G8, I forget which of the two they called it, that year. And Alexis Tsipras, I think in his early 30s, was there, by the way, in Genoa in 2001. So was I in Genoa. I mean, I, I left on a ship from Pires and we landed uh, in Genoa. But I think we were late in arriving because the Italians didn't let us get off the shipping time because a few hours earlier... The police had killed an Italian, and there was there was an issue about how many more people they would allow for the protest. Uh, but obviously, with the WTO, I think it goes back even further. It goes back to the 1970s, when Kissinger, who was opposed at the time to Russia, uh, used China as the springboard to relocate a lot of U.S. industries there. And around 50 years later, he made China great again. And the globalists basically succeeded in destroying most of industrial North America. And at the same time, most of the industries in Europe, you know, bar Germany's, but most of the others have been destroyed. Everything is produced now in Asia, comes to the EU and comes to America, very low cost, and both these continents have lost their indigenous capacity to survive as independent nation states. And I think that is where the problem is, that people stopped voting for the mainstream parties, and the mainstream parties had to adapt and change. And the difference between the UK and America is that uh, the Republican Party brought in an outsider who wasn't really involved in politics. Trump's not a politician. He's a businessman. It's got nothing to do with politics. And yet they criticised him using political language that he doesn't follow, you know, PC. I mean, why should he? Uh, PC was created and massively extended from the moment globalization uh, expanded everywhere as a form of control so no one criticizes anything over anything so i can't criticize a made in china product and then if you add 
all the other phobias along. The list is endless. Basically, we end up being silenced and not be able to talk about what is actually going on. And I think the issue now is how do we restore a productive capacity to each nation to be able to survive? And the only way to be able to do that is if we minimize the power of the globalists, uh, the globalist wing. And I think this harassment against Trump will obviously rebound back. But the fact that you're involved in that whole circus and the whole process means that time becomes limited and then he's not able to take, you know, good decisions on other issues. I think it's a process which, you know, grinds down not only the individuals, but the whole team around him. And it's deliberate. As far as I know, the impeachment process against Clinton was done at the time in order for the military to be able to have a free hand in, you know, bombing and destroying Yugoslavia. And it was totally ridiculous then, you know, uh, an impeachment because he had sexual relations or didn't have with a staff member. And, you know, the circus went on for months. And now, what is it Trump has actually done in the Ukraine? He, he wasn't even there. Uh, whereas Biden and his son have had their hands in the honeypot. And there's a whole, a whole caboodle of stuff that's going to come out. And it's quite ironic that another thing they're not reporting is that the ex-finance minister of the Ukraine, under the Poroshenko regime, the one that Obama fully supported and sent over money and loans for them to continue their civil war against uh, their eastern population, was shot in London and she's going around in a wheelchair. She's in a wheelchair. And this is hardly reported that there is a conflict now, which I think is spanning a few continents. In, in other words, the semi-civil war type relationship within the American political elites is spreading not only into the UK, it's spreading into the Ukraine, it's hitting the EU, and it will also affect Greece. What's, what's your opinion? Yeah. I agree. And I think one of the signs that this is happening is exactly what you mentioned, the fact that um, a lot of these incidents are barely being reported, if at all, such as the former Ukrainian uh, finance minister that barely registered on the news, whereas you might remember about a year ago there was that Skripal case uh, that was in the news for months, and in the end I don't think anyone even knows what actually happened. It, the, the narrative kept changing. Um, it got so confusing in the end that I think people stopped paying attention, but the media was just harping on about it for months. Now you get someone that's actually shot in London and the media just isn't talking. But since you mentioned the Ukraine, you have Biden and his son. You also have apparently Nancy Pelosi's son, the Speaker of the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi, her son, also involved in the Ukraine. Let's say family members of prominent Democratic Party politicians in particular 
in the U.S. So it seems that there's a lot of stuff that's about to come out, uh, or at least they're afraid that a lot of stuff is going to come out. And that may explain this mad rush to get the impeachment done on the part of the House, which is controlled by the Democratic Party, before more material comes out. But it's probably going to come out anyway. About what you said also about this, let's say, war spreading. I mean, I see it and I feel it in Greece. I'll give an example. I don't know how relevant it is, but I think it's at least a little bit relevant. Uh, I had the opportunity to be interviewed back in October on a radio station here in Athens. (laughs) And they wanted to interview me about... Trump and Biden and the Ukraine. This is when all those allegations first started coming out. And I did the interview, it was live. And at the very end was the question about Joe Biden. And I mentioned what the various allegations against Biden and his son were. And then I also went into a little bit of history about the Biden family because there's been other problems in the past involving them. And pretty much at that point, I told the listeners, this was in Greek, that, you know, I really want the listeners in Greece to understand that we talk about how dirty politics is in Greece, and it is, no one denies it, but there's often this perception that politics elsewhere is not dirty, especially in countries that Greeks like to call civilized and serious, like the U.S. and others. And I said, that's not the case. Politics is corrupt everywhere. And I think that's something that listeners should keep in mind when you hear about these things going on in places like the U.S. And the host very suddenly just wraps up the interview, even though he had told me we would be on for longer and just like took me off the air. And that was that. And then he never even sent me, (laughs) he never even sent me a recording of the show, which he did the previous times he interviewed me. He wouldn't even respond to messages. So I think that there's people that are being irked by anyone that comes out and says, and that basically goes against, let's say the, the mainstream approved narrative. I've seen this again more recently on social media There's various, let's say, Greek journalists, some are in Greece and some are in the diaspora, and they're just going on and on and on and on about the Trump impeachment. They were also going on about Trump not recognizing the Armenian genocide, which is interesting because there's no actual statement from Trump. The statement came from the State Department. That's the first interesting thing. And the second is that even if he recognized the genocide, and this is going to sound wrong to some people, but I'll explain It's of historic significance, I understand, and it is a historical truth, but look at Germany. They recognized the Armenian Genocide in 2016, just three years ago, and yet Germany today is opening factories and auto plants in Turkey. Merkel and Erdogan have a great relationship. So what actually changed in German-Turkish relations after that recognition. Nothing, really. So anyone that was expecting that just because a resolution was passed, which is just a symbolic vote in the U.S., that this would suddenly you know, mean that relations between Turkey and the U.S. have changed, 
you know, this is completely off base, in my opinion. If you want to look at how relations between the U.S. and Turkey may be changing, look at the fact that the U.S. still has not unfrozen the sale of the F-35s to Turkey, or look at what is going on now with uh, the various pipeline deals, which maybe you can talk about a little bit more, Evans. So all of those things are not being discussed by these Greek analysts that supposedly are experts on everything. And if someone comes along and disagrees with them, they become the bad guy. I've become the bad guy in many cases. And at this point, it doesn't even bother me. Because if I make an argument, I try to make an argument based on evidence. And in many cases, that's not what they're doing. They're just trying to sway the public in a certain direction. And I think when they see that someone is calling them out on that, they they <laughs> they, they don't like it, clearly. Yeah, the, the, there's obviously the issue of, you know, who owns the channels and who pays the piper for the tune. And Greece is fully embedded in, like, the globalist wing uh, of globalism. They're actually more globalists than the globalists themselves. I mean, if we look at the present government, uh, it was elected on a platform of closing the borders and criticising the previous government for allowing a free-for-all. And then what does the new government do? It, uh, like the Heineken advert says, you know, it's a beer that reaches the parts uh, in areas that others can't. Uh, Mitsotakis' government, the new democracy government, has opened uh, alleged refugee camps in all the areas that never existed before. So they've opened in the southern Peloponnese, which has been a bastion of new democracy for the last hundred years. And, you know, they're talking about opening uh, alleged refugee camps in Crete. Syriza wouldn't have dared in those two areas, but new democracy is. And as a quid pro quo against it, uh, you know, they're chasing a few alleged migrants in the centre, you know, they're now showing in the media that, you know, they're arresting people that have been going around doing muggings, pickpocketing. After having allowed them all in, after having abolished the tourist police, after having allowed a free-for-all, because even till today, people are coming across the Greek-Turkish border on foot. Then they get to Thessaloniki and then they get free travel on the train. And they arrive in Athens. I, I saw them with my own eyes. So the globalist agenda is well and strong in Greece by the ruling party and probably the whole of the media and all the radio stations included. And as for the, you know, the pipeline bills, if we go back a bit, uh, Greece is the country with France and Italy that signed uh, the pipeline bill back in the 2000 decade. Uh, where it was supposed to arrive from Russia, oil and gas. And then the Americans at the time were in conflict uh, with Russia and they said, you know, we're not supposed to have it. And then we had uh, the firebombing of Greece and then the fake riots over this Alexei Grigoropoulos, which happened now every year. We have like a little parade. The police go around chasing a few and lo and behold, almost 20 years later, the pipeline is now up and running and will start functioning 
via Bulgaria. So Greece lost out of the Russian uh, oil and gas pipeline. And in return, we allegedly were going to have this Azerbaijani pipeline called TAP, whose pipeline is being completed across northern Greece. And they also came up with another pipeline coming from Israel, the East Med pipeline, which is going to go through Cyprus and then arrive somewhere in Greece. Now, the problem with these other two pipelines are who's going to supply them? And lo and behold, Turkey is now a transit route for the two pipelines, one the Russian one and one the TAP, the Azerbaijani one. I cannot see the Azerbaijani one ever coming on online because it gives too much geopolitical power to Turkey. And at the moment, Turkey is in a dispute with the USA because Turkey every now and again threatens, you know, not long ago, they were taking over half of Syria. And it's all gone silent. We haven't even heard what's happened. And as far as I know, they've got a few miles of some border in some corner that they control. Recently, they threatened they were going to invade half of Libya and support the government in Tripoli after having signed some pact where half of the Aegean Sea goes over to them on, on the south of Crete. Again, our government is full in support of everything Turkey does. The only problem they have is how do they sell it to the population and how then do they change all the maps of the EU? Because if Turkey now controls sections of the Aegean, de facto they become members of the EU. And if we recall, the French referendum in the 2000 era and also the British referendum, a lot of the campaign slogans were we don't want Turkey to join the EU. And Greece is continuing the old politics under new conditions. And if Trump wins a second term, and what we believe might be happening is a geopolitical realignment with the Russians, uh, there's going to be changes that come to Greece, which I don't think they understand what the implications are. We cannot have a hyper-globalist government, uh, which is more Syriza than Syriza, for the next 12 months. There's going to be something that will kill it. Right, I tend to agree as well, Evans, and I think that what uh, we've seen historically in Greece is that governments here have traditionally done whatever their patrons have uh, wanted them to, to the bitter end, and they have not really been in tune with broader trends and changes in the geopolitical map until it's too late. And then at that point, Greece just becomes a country that reacts as things happen elsewhere, rather than being a country that is also actively participating in the changes that take place. And I think we're seeing that again now in this instance as well, where on the one hand, you know, we're going to have, from what it looks like, Brexit in some form, probably in 2020. We're hearing again that an Italian exit and even a Polish exit from the European Union are back on the table. We're seeing huge protests that are not going away 
in France. And the message of a lot of those protesters is not one that is favorable to the EU. And yet we have governments in Greece successively that seem to just have their uh, their head in the sand and not see what is happening in the rest of the continent and are just keeping up, keeping on as if things were as they were before. That's just the way that I see it. Definitely, definitely. I think they're living on borrowed time and they're living in the previous era of, you know, globalism with no limits. But the reality is, you know, change is coming and it will be forced upon them. Obviously, we can't know exactly how, but a lot of these parties can also be controlled. I mean, recently, an, a, an, another joke happened. Uh, Samaras, who was the previous prime minister in 2012, who imposed a lot of the draconian uh, cuts in pensions and wages, he also introduced an anti-racist law. And basically what that law stated was, if you were Greek, and you complained about anything, they would, you know, throw you to the walls. Inside New Democracy's Congress that happened uh, sometime in December, he used the phrase illegal immigrant, which apparently is banned. And he was then sent a prosecution under the hate crime law his government introduced. So it's quite ironic that the two wings, the hyper-globalist wing and the nation-state-based wing, are going to end up having a battle and they're going to be neutralising each other out. That's why I said at some point, this appears to be an incipient civil war that started in the US and is now spreading everywhere. As we have just a couple of minutes left, I wanted to just bring it back to Brexit for us to close out uh, today's program. Uh, You mentioned, Evans, when you were talking about the migration issue in Greece, how the Southern Peloponnese has been a bastion for the New Democracy Party. And that brought to mind immediately what happened in the elections in the UK recently, where so many districts that were traditional labor districts for decades, if not a century or more, were lost by the Labor Party. The Tories won those districts or many of those districts. And I think it's just another sign of these changes that are taking place in the electoral map and in politics more broadly. And it's changes that there's that many, you know, we were talking about the Greek political system, but I think we're seeing from in in the way that the Labour Party has reacted, the way that the Democratic Party is reacting to any defeat in the U.S., we're just seeing a, a state of denial. I don't know if you agree with that assessment. Yeah, uh, definitely. In a future program, we should try and have a small program on what the role of Corbyn was in this whole process, because obviously it needs a bit more time to answer it. But to cut a long story short, it looks like the era of Corbyn as a leader of the Labour Party achieved one thing. It kept the party united. And secondly, it made the Tories great again, primarily because after 10 years of severe cuts, where we have millions of people in food banks, and then we have Brits losing their rights to housing, 
because of the mass migration flows, uh, the Tories won, uh, you know, a third general election, uh, or is it a fourth in 10 years? Phenomenal amount of victories. And Labour lost traditional Labour seats. They lost, I think, six seats in Wales, where the Tories haven't held one for over 100 years. They lost northern towns uh, where there were steel makers, where an MP was elected there, Dennis Skinner, for over 50 years on, on a left Labour ticket, also opposed to the EU. Uh, they lost Sedgefield, which was a seat that Tony Blair is elected was elected in, uh, because what normally happened was uh, the British system, if the Prime Minister is to be elected, he has to win a seat. And normally they put him in a safe Labour seat where they have over 20,000 uh, majority, you know, guarantee. They lost that seat. It's totally amazing. Labour did not adopt Brexit from day one. If Corbyn had done it, had campaigned for leave, he would have taken the wind out of the Tories and he could have said he's implementing it and he would have uh, continued to win. Instead, he campaigned for Remain and then he spent the last four years dithering right up until a month ago where his deputy campaigned openly and spoke on the platform for Remain and a second referendum just before they got wiped out in the election. I mean, everyone knew it. I think also them. But I don't think they wanted to govern. So the Labour Party now is split and hopefully we'll have three or four smaller parties being created uh, because I don't think they can easily now find the leader for the next decade who stands for anything because all the people they have, basically all pro-EU Remainers, globalists, and all they're concerned about is identity politics and mass migration into the country. And when it comes to economics, it's just cloud cuckoo land stuff. Like, you know, the whole of the world can relocate here and we're going to give jobs to everyone. I mean, how's that going to work? Or we're going to house everyone. No control over anything. It's just totally absurd. So as we close out the show today, final, I'll, I'll finish with a question since you addressed some of this at the beginning. Uh, as we go into 2020, do you think there is any possibility of a no deal? Is the previous deal, the one that was agreed upon prior to the elections, uh, still on the table? And what about a WTO Brexit, which we kept hearing about a few months back in light of the developments at the WTO that we talked about earlier? I think the answer to that question will be what stance the EU will take. The difference between what happens next year and what happened this year is obviously the Conservative Party has an 80-seat majority. And if they say no to something the EU has a problem. On the other hand, Johnson personally is not really, you know, a hard Brexit individual, but that might change depending on how 
the changes occur within America as well. If America, re remember, we've got the American elections in November, we've got the negotiations for Brexit come the end of January, and in between, we also have, I think, Italian elections. This will change the balance of forces. And at the same time, within Germany, uh, Merkel is now in a very, very weak position. She's been held hostage by the other party that she governs with. And if any of those four variables changes, that has an effect on all the negotiations, I believe. It's basically a fluid situation, and we can't obviously know the contours, but the trajectory is for the UK to return to some form of nation-state sovereignty. And I think they will be obliged, as time goes by, to take more and more measures defending their sovereignty. We already had announcements by the Home Office Minister that free movement will end fully. It might not end come January the 31st, but by December 2020, it will end. Visas will then come back in, and uh, that will be a sure sign that Brexit has occurred. Right, so we'll have a lot of developments to discuss as we go into the new year. This is obviously our final show of 2019. So, Evans, uh, thanks for taking the time to chat today. Uh, we'll have more opportunities to do this come 2020. Definitely. Thanks to your listeners as well. All right, this was uh, the Alagos Radio for this week. At this point, I would like to wish our listeners a Merry Christmas. Happy holidays and a very happy and healthy and successful New Year 2020. The Alagos Radio will be back with one final Greek language program to round out 2019. And then after a short holiday break, we'll be back again in the new year with more programming on our new format, our new talk radio format. Uh, we'll have the opportunity to chat with Evans Agelisopoulos again about developments in Greece and Europe and the world. So Evans, thanks again. Happy holidays to you. We'll talk again in 2020. This has been the Alagos Radio. Thanks for joining us. Follow the Alagos Radio on Facebook and Twitter and remain connected to all our latest news and updates. Check us out today at facebook.com slash thealagosmedia and at twitter.com slash thealagosmedia. TheAlagosMedia.org, our website which brings you the latest news from The Alagos Radio, live streaming of The Alagos Radio 24-7, podcasts, on-demand programming, and much more. Visit us today at TheAlagosMedia.org.